everybody. This is Ali Amagasu welcoming you back to the latest episode of Cloud Unfiltered. We hope you're all doing well. Things are good here. Still working from home in Southern California. Pete, how are things in Michigan? It's still, it's a beautiful summer here in middle, middle of nowhere, Michigan. I'm back in the underground nerd layer today and um, really excited about today's guest. I am too. Um, let me go ahead and introduce him. His name is Tolga Tarhan. He is the CTO at Rackspace, which is obviously going to be a very familiar name to almost anyone listening to this. Welcome, Tolga. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And uh, I wish I had an underground nerd layer just to get that out there. <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're more common here in middle of nowhere, Michigan, than you might think. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, in, in California, there's no really... I've never lived in a house that has a basement, ever. Well, it's, it's the earthquakes, right? It's the right. earthquakes and right. basements are not friends. Very appealing, though. I like it. It doesn't count against your square footage either, right? It's just kind of ghost square footage, isn't it? It depends on if it's finished or not, and that's like a whole... I don't think we want to turn this into, like, real estate unfiltered. But, <laughs> but yeah, it, it depends on if it's finished or not. I could in a red-hot second, but okay. Let's talk about the interesting things that Tolga has to say. Tolga, it came to uh, our attention because you did recently write a very interesting article in Forbes, and... I'll tell you, there was some language in there that was strong. And, and what got our attention was you talked about the idea of VMs becoming obsolete. That's pretty spicy. Would you care to uh, expand on that statement and, and where you were going with that? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, when I say VMs are, are going obsolete, they, they'll be with us for a long time because there's such a, a base of applications, right? Virtually every major enterprise application running in every major enterprise uh, company is running on a VM today. But when you look at where we're headed, when you look at how do you build a new app today, if you were going to go and, you know, if Pete and I were in an in in enterprise company building a new product for our customers, what would we think to go use? And we probably wouldn't start from VMs. We would probably think, man, can we use serverless? Can we make this all event-driven? Or if we had some reason we can't do that, at least can we make it containers? And so I just don't think you're going to see people make the choice to choose VMs and to choose infrastructure-based uh, solutions like IaaS solutions over these sort of slightly higher up the stack options. You mentioned serverless. That's obviously very interesting. Anybody who listens to the show knows that's interesting to us. What would the case be for not going serverless? What, like, what would the exception be? Are there exceptions? Yeah, there definitely are. So look... Serverless is an interesting model because it's all event-driven, right? So now, now event's a pretty vague word. Time can be events. Web requests can be events. But for things that are long-running, um, that, that need to stay connected to some external system, that need to interface with legacy um, systems or APIs, it doesn't always work to map those into kind of a purely event-driven model. And that's probably the number one reason you can't use serverless in certain places and their containers becomes really attractive because often those same workloads work very well in a container environment. I also think it's important for, for people to think about this as not a this versus that. That's really an and kind of solution. In my opinion, you, part of your app can be serverless. Part of your app can be containers. And for as much as we talk about all API-driven interactions, it shouldn't matter that some of it runs in one place and some runs in the other. Talks to each other via some API that you develop. Cool. Great answer. Pete, any questions about that or comments? Well, I mean, okay, so I'm trying to think back to, I, I was fortunate enough to be a speaker at OpenStack Summit in 2012. And if you had told me eight years later that the Rackspace CTO would be talking about VM obsolescence, like that's, that's, the OpenStack folks are not a, like a violent group, I would say, but like, 
I don't know that you'd make it out of that room unscathed if you had made that statement eight years ago. So I guess so. So I want to I want to throw a term at you and see if if it sticks. Right. So the U.S. government took this cloud first attitude several years ago. How far out do you think we are between having a serverless first attitude in the industry, given some of the things that you just talked about? Wow. Okay, that is great. Um, I think that I think that for net new applications in the sort of tech forward customers today, we're already there. So now we could argue that the real decision is going to be what's a tech forward customer, like how how tech forward are we talking about? So um, probably not talking about um, you know financial institutions adopting serverless as their first choice today. But if we look at custom companies that are building SaaS products, or companies that are building um, customer facing web applications and they're building them new today, I think serverless is really at the top of their mind already. Um, it, it's really hard to ignore and think to, my, to, to yourself today, hey, let's go and let's, let's get .NET or let's get Java and let's build on VMs or traditional app, that all the overhead of that. Um, it starts to make less and less sense every day. Well, and you don't even have to think. So, so I do a serverless 101 talk at Cisco Live every year. And one of the examples I use that's two years old now is like KitchenAid, like tech giant KitchenAid has a serverless application in production for the last two years. That's their store finder, right? You, you want a KitchenAid product. You want to, you, you want to find out what stores near you have that product so you can physically touch it in a store, at least in the UK when they debuted this two years ago, right? They take a dump of their their store data into DynamoDB. They got a static web host. They're using an S3 bucket, and they've got some JavaScript that then talks to uh, API gateway that then launches some Lambda functions to read content out of that out of that DynamoDB. Right. So, like, it's it's that kind of stuff that's that's approachable for for non tech companies even today. How how big a deal do you think? With serverless, in terms of you know you're you're responsible for fewer and fewer things. Is the time to market gain like the major thing there? The developer productivity and the time to market gain you get out of that, or or are there other things that are the big benefits of this approach? Yeah, I think look, I think the developer time allocation is a huge one. So when you build a typical app, you end up having to build build a lot of sort of lifecycle code, code that is not part of the business logic, but that has to exist and and no matter how good the frameworks you're using, no matter how good the inversion of control stuff, whether you know, using Spring or something like that, it gives you some edge, but it doesn't get you to where you're just writing business logic code. The, in serverless applications, you tend to get really close to a model where every line of code you write is actually part of the logic of your app, and there's very little glue code needed. So that's number one. Number two, it forces you to be extremely cloud-native and DevOps-centric. So when you when we think about good cloud adoption and being cloud native we think ephemeral instances and we think immutable infrastructure well there's no better way to get there than serverless like it kind of forces good behavior from an adoption of the cloud point of view and then third it reduces cost especially in the early days of an app or for an app that doesn't have huge 24/7 workload whether or not it's cost effective for apps that are extremely busy is I think probably an open debate still today, and, and we all know price only goes down in this world. And so, it, if it's not cost effective today, it will be tomorrow. But so, I, you know, Pete, the answer I think is developer productivity, the sort of DevOps, CI/CD benefits, and, and immutable ephemeral infrastructure benefits, 
and then and then finally the um, the cost piece. Well, but what about the drawbacks, right? So the other side of that coin tends to be if you're going to go with a serverless mindset, that means you're going to be using a lot more PaaS services. That's right. Right. And and one of the things when I when I talk to Cisco audiences is that there, there's there's two kinds of AWS services. There's and, and it's like Vegas, right? When you go to Vegas, as long as you're spending money at the blackjack table, they will comp you a limo ride. They will comp you a room. They will give you David Copperfield tickets. Some PaaS services are David Copperfield tickets. Some PaaS services are blackjack tables, right? Like S3, certainly with the ingress, that's that those are David Copperfield tickets. But when you start getting into like API Gateway or Athena or some of these others, like those are blackjack tables. So, so there's the getting you locked into a more cost, uh, a highly costly PaaS service with, with with this approach, and then getting you locked into AWS in general. So, how do you how do you respond to those kinds of concerns with people coming to this new? I think there are two kinds of PaaS services that you definitely have kind of obligatory use of when you go serverless. One is some kind of database, right? Hopefully, a modern one like Dynamo. Uh, and the other is probably some kind of like object store, like say S3. I think outside of those two kind of, uh, and then API gateway actually, obviously for the ingress event piece, outside of those three, let's say um, obligatory pass services, you know, you can pick and choose what you use. So you don't have to use Athena. You don't have to use the blackjack table services that you talked about. But Pete, I think I would also challenge the analogy a bit. I think what happens is services in the public cloud are more expensive when they're used against the intended use cases. What you'll often find is if you're using a pass service for the intended use cases, and you can kind of find these by looking at the ones that are talked about on the product page, it tends to be pretty cost effective, especially relative to doing that same use case some other way. When what happens is these services are so powerful, they get co-opted into other, other workloads, other things that maybe the service wasn't made for. And those tend to be uh, more costly so one of my kind of items that I check when I'm talking to customers is, if you think you're paying too much, did you choose the right set of services? Because often there's a bit of a penalty for using the wrong service for the wrong workload. Well, and are you using them correctly, right? Because I know a mistake that I have made in the past, for example, is to use DynamoDB and to, to use it in like a faux SQL kind of way, right? Like if right. you're using if you're using Dynamo the same way that you would use uh, RDS, you're doing it wrong and it's going to be more expensive as opposed to if you pay more attention to your usage patterns and use it in the way that it's intended, then it's actually reasonable cost, right? So there's there's those kinds of things that go into it. But but what about the overall lock-in, right? Like we've been, mostly been speaking of this in terms of AWS services. What about the danger of tying yourself to AWS and then AWS decides to invade whatever your core business, or Amazon at large decides to invade whatever your core business is. But now you've spent all this time writing all this code that's locked you into AWS. What if now I want to move this to Azure or Alibaba or, or GCP? What about those kind of lock-in kind of concerns? Yeah, really good question. And I would take that in two parts. I think there we do hear a lot customers concerned about Amazon competing with them. You know, retail customers in particular are always concerned about this. One thing I'd like to, to kind of put to bed is I don't believe there are people at AWS with access to your data that are like hunting and extracting it on behalf of amazon.com. Like think about the scandal that that would represent. But I also just don't, I think that the tech guys that operate these kind of infrastructures, um, their ethics would never let them do that either. Like I, I just don't think that's a realistic problem. So that's 
that's one sort of issue. On the other hand, though, I think cloud portability is a very real thing customers are concerned about. I think they ask every call now that I have. It's, it's a topic. Um, I would say that for serverless applications, you could get to like, let's say, 75% of your code is reusable, right? So all the business logic is the same. What's different is how it hooks into the various eventing systems and how it hooks into these, these past services. Today, I don't think there's a good abstraction for those. And I think that abstraction is actually pretty challenging to build. But... I don't think you're talking about throwing away your, your code when you go move from vendor to vendor. And I think it's also important to realize that that investment to build an abstraction may be better made when you need it rather than when you first build your application. So sure. customers often come and say, well, I want to invest the time to abstract away every AWS service so that my code doesn't even know it's talking to AWS and I could replace AWS with something else just by changing my abstraction code. But that's like, let's say that's 30% or 40% more work, which it probably is. Why not put that money in your pocket and use that money only if you ever need to make that move as opposed to kind of preemptively doing that? Well, and that's kind of the Netflix argument, right? Like early in their their life cycle in about that same time of 2012, right? I mean, Adrian Cocroft would, when he was at Battery Ventures, had a talk where he was like, well, we had $100 million. Do you invest that in in going to a new, opening up a new country or building your own data center. One of them builds my value and the other doesn't. Right? Exactly. So it's, it's like a trade-off to be made. And I guess the other way to think about this, and I'm not, I'm not sure how true this is, but let me, let me bounce this off of you. The primary concern with lock-in is you're afraid of the rewrite cost. Well, if the rewrite cost is shrinking, is lock-in a thing anymore? Like if your rewrite cost approaches zero, it'll never get there, of course. But if because you did serverless, your, your time to market was so small, does it matter if you had to, re, if you really had to rewrite your whole app in, in GCP or in Azure, how big a deal is that really relative to the other concerns? You think we're to that point yet or am I, am I, am I making too big a deal of that? No, I mean, I don't think we're, I wish rewrite costs were, were <laughs> zero, but I think what we could say is only a percentage of your app has to be rewritten. And so you get these compounding effect of writing code is getting easier and easier and easier because the APIs are getting higher and higher level, right? And on top of that, you're only rewriting a small portion of it. So I think keeping that money in your pocket, going deep with whoever you pick and building natively is going to give you the advantage. And look, if you ever need to move later, like just cross that bridge when you get there. I'm, I'm really sure that's the right call. And maybe the only exception to that would be customers who their customers are demanding to operate their product in multiple clouds, right? That, like that's the one area where it right. gets tricky is it's not my own business requirement, but my customers are requiring me to run this application in multiple clouds because they want it closer to where they're running their workload. That's probably the one use case where you could say, you know, right off the bat, you got you to solve for that multi-cloud, single application, multi-cloud workload. But I think outside of that use case, you're better off using multiple clouds on a kind of per workload basis. Say this workload runs best in AWS and this workload runs best in GCP, that, that kind of thing. Well, and even is that, is that geographical closeness, is, is that a thing anymore with wavelength and... And local zones, right? Because I mean, those were initially those are created so you can get low, lower latency to the customer, but they also potentially have the side effect of of doing that closer to you know whatever your internal data center is. I mean, we're we're not seeing things like Lambda on there yet, but it's all nitro-based hardware, so it it doesn't take much of an imagination to assume that you know you can do EKS 
in all those form factors today, Lambda's coming at some point. Lambda and Firecracker are, are coming at some point to to those two, right? For sure. I mean, Lambda already exists on you know green grass. Like it, it's way out there at the way edge. And so Lambda's definitely on Snowball too, right? So Lambda's definitely coming to every platform. But when I say closeness, though, it's not always geographic closeness. Sometimes sure. what you have is your customer is demanding that your workload run in the same cloud as them because they want better connectivity between their environments and yours, for example. And what we've not really solved for today, and, and this is a great Cisco topic actually, is moving that kind of network core into the cloud. Right? Today, I think big enterprises are still maintaining their network cores on-prem and then kind of branching out to the different clouds. And as a result, you've got kind of a hub and spoke, you know, in a big enterprise, a hub and spoke look and feel to some of this. I do think over time, if we could get the sort of network core into the cloud, then maybe you're right. Maybe the connectivity between cloud vendors would be so transparent to the customer that it wouldn't matter. Right. So Tolga, two of the things I want to ask you about. So the, the first is you talked about how the design pattern is typically that you need some kind of external access like API gateway, and then you need some kind of data storage, whether that's Dynamo or, or whatever. One of the more recent developments in Lambda world is the ability to now attach an EFS volume to uh, running Lambda. That's something that they announced in June. And so for those not familiar, it's, it's basically being able to take an NFS mount and put it on top of, uh, put it into a Lambda function in a way that you couldn't before. And, and the, the promise of that is potentially doing things like AIML workloads because you each Lambda function, you, you currently get like, it's, it's like half a gig of ephemeral storage you get on that. And so it limits the file size that you can operate on within a Lambda function. For for things like bigger, you know, like AIML workloads, if you're doing if you're doing some some training workloads on Lambda, even if you were able to pull a file from say S3 to then operate on your your Lambda, you're still limited by that by the size of that ephemeral storage. But now because you have this this EFS mount, you know, the akin to this NFS mount, the the file size that you can have a Lambda operate on in those kind of workloads is now unlimited. I guess how big a deal do you think that is, and are we going to see are we going to see serverless AIML where you'll be able to spin up ten thousand functions in parallel? You know, you'll basically be able to build your own supercomputer with 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 Lambda functions. Do you think that's that's going to be a thing here, or mm. or do you think you know because you don't get to choose GPU instance types with Lambda since you're stuck with white label CPUs? Do you, do you think that that's going to be a limiting factor there? So I think this is one of those features that can be really dangerous. Uh, and I mean dangerous in terms of like setting, helping people hurt themselves a little bit too easily. So here's the thing. I think EFS on Lambda could be really useful for large code sizes because as you know, the way Lambda operates today kind of downloads your code package from S3 transparently and starts running it. And if your package is very big, the cold start times are higher and you know it's just, there's limits on the max code size. So like, first of all, putting code on EFS and making it available is interesting. You get into kind of a version control challenge, and there, there, there are downsides, but it's interesting. I think uh, taking legacy file system dependent applications and using them on Lambda becomes more realistic as well. I don't. There's two things I don't think people should do. I don't. I don't think they should use EFS to replace S3. Like if prior to this feature being available, you would have stored that on S3. Sure. I think you should still continue to do that. Um, I, I think there's so much more value to, to that approach. And then secondly, I think, I don't know that this is the best way to build long running sort of batch jobs still today. I, I don't, I think 
you could be better off spinning up a bunch of containers to go do what you just described, to, at least today. While it would be novel and neat, and you certainly could do it in Lambda, I wonder if that would be the most cost-effective way to do it versus just launching a bunch of containers. Interesting. I hadn't thought of the of the code size, uh, but that's an interesting because because again you're limited to that half half gig and the ephemeral storage even when it comes to your um, your function package size. So that that's I hadn't thought of that use case, and and that's a good point about if if you couldn't use S three, then you probably if you could already use S3, you probably shouldn't stop doing so. That's that's an interesting one. The, the other one I wanted to hit is hit you on is is this has been hot and cold over the last eighteen months or go, or so. W one of the things to try to mitigate that lock-in story is eventing standards, right? So we we don't have them now, and one of the things that's unique about each each serverless approach that each vendor has is there's a different set of your different set of potential event trigger services and in each each vendor has their own unique eventing mechanism. And there's been some like CNCF kind of, hey, let's get some standards around what these uh, events are, but that, that doesn't seem to get much traction. Do you, do you think that's gonna become a thing or do you think that because of some of these same time to market, you know, these, these time to market concerns that may or may not, that because of these other lock-in concerns that may or may not go away because of the time-to-market gains we get, do you, do you think an industry-wide eventing is kind of doomed before it starts? No, look, I think we have to get there. I would say I've spent most of my most of my cloud career actually telling people, hey, don't worry about this, just just adopt totally cloud-native and disregard this this stuff. But the reality is the the pressure to get to some commonality is is so is so strong, and I think. We're at this. We're at the point now. We're hurting adoption of these frameworks because because of the lack of standardization. So I do think, while I want each hyperscaler to continue to build cool new unique features, I do think the baseline functionality of like serverless needs to become a stand, an industry standard API. I think we're there. Getting back to your original list of recommendations from that Forbes article, you know, you touched multiple times in your conversation with Pete on the cloud benefits of cloud native, mm -hmm. for sure, and and just some of the outcomes of being cloud native. But let's take a step back. You had recommended the, adopting a cloud native mindset. What do you mean by that? What's the upside of that? And how do you get there? That's right, yeah, cloud native is not just a technology decision. And, and I think this is one of the hardest things as you migrate to the cloud. A cloud migration is at least two things at once. It is moving your infrastructure, like a kind of outsourcing of infrastructure, and it is a change in, in your model. And this model has lots and lots of legs. So how you build software, how you package it, how you deploy it, how you monitor it, it all has to evolve. If it doesn't evolve into to leverage the goodness of the cloud, you end up with what I like to call data center in the cloud kind of models. And the problem with that is it's like picking up your data center, moving it somewhere with no address. So now you don't know where it is, um, but you haven't really accomplished those kind of promised values of the cloud, right? And so are you going to get the cost or reliability benefits? Probably not. In fact, you may see reduced reliability depending on how you do it. Are you going to get the pace, the, the innovation speed benefits? Almost certainly not, right? And so I think to get the promised value of the cloud, you have to actually transform your business, how teams are structured, how responsibilities is, are, are distributed, um, how accountability works, how change control works. It, it all has to change. I can see, though, why as someone running an IT organization, you would you would go, well, this is a low-hanging fruit, moving my data center to the cloud. 
and literally physically moving it because people are difficult. Like changing the way people work and changing the way your organization is structured and how they cooperate with each other, that is sticky work. And if you were just looking to check that box as easily as possible, you would grab that low-hanging fruit and do that. So what you're saying, though, is you're not going to get the reward unless you put in the, the hard work. you got to get your right. hands There's, dirty. I think you're right. There's a lot of temptation to just lift and shift. Hey, let me find a replication tool. Let me replicate these VMs, and, and away we go. But I think you got to step back and go, then what, what's the outcome you're seeking? Like, I think there's an important conversation about what do you intend to achieve with your cloud migration? And I think most customers at first would say, well, I want cost and reliability, and I want to be out of the data center business. Well, if you move to the cloud and you still have pets versus cattle, meaning you know your servers have names and you care about them and you have to maintain them, well, how have you really gotten out of the data center business? I mean, yeah, sure, you're not doing power and cooling, but you're still maintaining kind of OS level and patching and you have to manage deployments the old fashioned way and you've not really enhanced your IT process. Whereas if you at least go and say, hey, I'm gonna build some automation, I'm gonna move towards immutable infrastructure and I'm gonna embrace the ephemeral instances and sort of know that in the cloud, instances come and go then, and it's a herd of cattle, not pets. If you at least take that first step, you end up getting a lot of the sort of scale, cost, reliability benefits. And then as you take incremental more steps, you also get the pace of innovation benefits to where you can deploy entire environments so quickly that your teams can now experiment and learn. You have new ways to do change control, new ways to roll back failed deployments, new ways to, to, to try new things. I think the really the, the end state you're seeking is quicker innovation, quicker time to market, quicker responsiveness to your customers. Because I think that responsiveness is kind of the currency of this decade. Like customers have no patience anymore to wait for new features. Um, I think people want everything right away. That's, that is probably the defining characteristic of the 2020s. That is the truth. So you're saying there's no easy button, but there's a path and it's worth it to follow that path. Absolutely. I believe very strongly in the benefits of, of going through this transformation. And in fact, it, the benefits are so much more than you expect because when you're done with this transformation, you've not only moved to the cloud, but you've become more agile. You've adopted kind of DevOps best practices. You've probably changed how you manage change within the code base and within the applications. You've probably built high accountability kind of two pizza teams with, you know, small teams with full responsibility over a a portion of your application or applications, that has so many other benefits. Now you're gonna hopefully have a more clear product roadmap. Now you're gonna hopefully be able to build and prioritize features more quickly and, and more accurately. So I think this transformation, the cloud is the catalyst for it, but it's actually a bigger, and I, I don't like the word digital transformation because it doesn't mean anything anymore, but it's a bigger digital transformation. So when you were discussing that, it brought up another point that you had made in that article that I thought was valuable. You, you really are kind of touching on it, but you say you don't have to transition all at once. It sounded like you were talking about kind of that incrementalism there as far as processes. But do you mean that as well for infrastructure? You, you mentioned about not having to go to containers or serverless all in one go. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean... I mean, I don't think I would ever suggest to a customer that like, okay, to go to the cloud, let's rewrite every application and start over. That's clearly not the path, right? And that would take, that would take a really long time. But what I do think is you have, to, you have to kind of make the decision on a per workload basis to say, which path am I going to choose? And I think some of the paths we've laid out with all the R's are, are, are not, they're too simplistic. I actually think that the, that the sort of simplest path, the one for applications that you're just going to maintain for a little bit of time, 
should look like, hey, I'm going to still build automation. I'm still going to do infrastructure as code. I'm still going to have a way to deploy updates to this application through my pipeline. Like you should at least consider those steps. You don't need to go to containers. You don't need to go to serverless. But you need to at least embrace some of the infrastructure automation for those easiest, simplest apps. And then as you move to your applications that you're going to do more refactoring to, that you're going to keep around for longer, that you're going to invest in, those you would look for containers or serverless, and you could do that over time. But actually, the thing I'm pushing back against is kind of that replicate a VM into the cloud. And if you step back, Ali, and think about when you replicate a VM into the cloud, you've really just cloned the existing uh, machine in a different place. If you're going to do anything but that, then ve the very next step ha is actually completely different than that approach. It's let me build infrastructure automation. Let me write Terraform or CloudFormation or whatever I want to use. Let me deploy an instance and then let me move the data. So think about how different the approach is. In one approach, you move the whole VM. In the other approach, you actually rebuild the VM from automation and you move just the data. And the problem is that that chasm from one to the other is impossible to cross after the fact. If you chose to do the VM migration, you have no path to the automated version. You have to re-migrate as kind of a cloud to cloud migration. And so I'm trying to avoid that sort of dead end first step and say, you know what, you may as well at least build infrastructure automation so that you don't end up with a VM that has no path forward towards automation. Yeah, nobody wants to migrate in the first place. I don't think anybody, really nobody wants to re-migrate, right? Right. <laughs> Let's yeah, not do you, it twice, for sure. Yeah, so if you take that, if you take that sort of replication-based approach to the cloud, we know that the future of that workload is either to retire it or remigrate it. There is no other outcome. Whereas if you at least build infrastructure automation along the way, now you've got the foundation in place to evolve from. I feel like this is a tough talk conversation for IT leaders that may be having fantasies about doing it the easy way or the quick way. It's not always popular to say. I have to say, I've gotten my fair share of kind of pushback uh, as I've talked to customers. But I, you know, I, I've I've witnessed applications migrate the called the easy way. And then I've witnessed how, okay, now what? Now how do we start to build automation? How do we start to get this you know, auto-scaling benefit? You can't do any of it with that VM that you just migrated over. Wow. You have brought up some really, really interesting angles on topics that I think a lot of people talk about but aren't looking at the same way. Maybe because they aren't as elbow deep in this as you are every day. So this has been a great conversation. Is there anything that you think that our audience should know as we go through this process that I haven't already covered as we as we move from, you know, a VM based world to whatever's next, whether it's, you know, a mixture of containers and serverless or just serverless or whatever it is. No, I think I think my parting thoughts on this is the cloud is a unique place. Um, it is, in fact, not a data center and you shouldn't think of it as a data center. And if you start your cloud journey with that understanding and you start the conversation with, OK, what do I need to change? How do I transform to adopt the cloud? You're going to get to the right outcome no matter what. If you start with the mindset of, hey, I'm just moving a data center, I think that's where the challenges start. Nice. Well, thank you so much for blowing our minds today. We appreciate it. It was a very enlightening conversation. And uh, I hope we'll get to talk to you in the future. I'd love that. Thank you. Hey, Tolga, thanks so much for the conversation. It's always nice yeah. to find a like-minded person. We, we often joke that there's a serverless drinking game for people who listen to this podcast. And <laughs> I think that definitely people should not listen to this episode while driving. <laughs> that's great that should be the intro <laughs> right it was, it was great it was great to meet you and if i can ever uh, engage with you guys again or engage with you again on something let me know all right bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.